Welcome to Getting Legal With It, a podcast for Colorado young lawyers by Colorado young lawyers. I'm your host, Kevin Chaney. For those listening to us for the first time, I'm a personal injury and criminal defense lawyer here in Colorado. I graduated from the University of Colorado Law School in 2014 and founded my practice, Chaney, Galuzzi, and Howard, a short time later. I'm a member of the Colorado Trial Lawyers Association, where I serve on its board, executive committee, and legislative committees. I also serve on the Colorado Bar Association's Board of Governors, the CBA Executive Committee, and the Colorado Bar Association's Young Lawyers Division Executive Council. Finally, I'm a member of the Colorado Criminal Defense Bar Association. If you're interested in learning more about any of these wonderful organizations, please feel free to shoot me an email at kevin at cghlawfirm.com. This podcast is created and sponsored by the Colorado Bar Association's Young Lawyers Division. Our goal with this podcast is to bring you bi-weekly episodes with information that is both fun and informative for young lawyers. We have some awesome guests lined up and we are just getting started. If you like our podcast, please, please, please leave us a review and tell your colleagues. And with that, let's jump right in. I'm really happy uh, today to introduce our guest, Linda Shalott. Linda is a partner at Shalott Hatton and Banker, has over 25 years of experience as a Colorado personal injury lawyer. As a partner at Shalott Hatton and Banker, uh, Linda Shalott concentrates her practice on medical malpractice cases, defective product claims, and recreational accidents. Before law school, Linda worked in in the industry as a chemical engineer and brings her understanding of the technical aspects of an accident to effectively advocate for her clients. Linda also oversees the technology used by the firm to best serve their clients, including maintaining the firm's online platforms, which provide current legal information for Colorado consumers and personal injury victims. She has published articles and spoken at professional seminars about ski litigation, attorney ethics and malpractice, and general practice tips. Uh, With that, uh, we welcome Linda to the podcast. Linda, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. I'm really excited to talk with you and share what pearls of wisdom I might be uh, able to dig up. Well, uh, we're certainly uh, glad to have you here and uh, looking forward to learning about some of those pearls. Uh, Also, uh, I should just let our listeners know uh, if this episode sounds a little different, uh, we are currently in a uh, high spike of the coronavirus uh, pandemic, uh, which has caused us to uh, have to shoot these episodes uh, remotely again. And so uh, please bear with us uh, if the sound quality is not quite uh, up to par uh, with some of our past episodes, but we're doing the best we can. Um, Linda, uh, why don't you just kind of introduce yourself and tell our listeners a little bit about kind of where you're from and where you went to school and kind of how you got here. Well, I um, bounced around the East Coast quite a bit with my family when I was young. We landed in Littleton when I was a teenager, graduated from Columbine High School, and have stuck awfully close ever since. Uh, Went to Colorado School of Mines for a degree in chemical engineering. Uh, My first job was down in Commerce City, worked there. Um, handling hazardous waste, which uh, led me to law school to try and really figure out what the RECRA laws meant and why they were written so badly. And uh, tell us a little bit about what is a a RECRA law? Uh, I'm not super familiar uh, with that kind of practice area, but what is that? 
It's the um, governance of hazardous waste material. Um, it, it, it's the, um, it, it, at the time, it was the laws that triggered um, designation as Superfund sites for areas that had been polluted by um, uh, industry. And we were, um, we were not polluters in the um, company I worked at. We were taking um, used catalyst from the hydrocarbon industry used in refrigerant making and cleaning out the arsenic and then rehabbing the catalyst. So we were really doing a, um, a recycle uh, service to the refrigerant industry, but it was some nasty stuff that we were pulling out. And, uh, and so I had to become familiar with the various EPA and state regulations. And it really was a whole new area of um, intellectual exercise that I had never been exposed to. Did you ever think about kind of becoming a lawyer uh, before that, or were you always envisioning yourself as, as more of a chemical engineer and it was kind of that experience with these rules and regulations that kind of said, hey, maybe law school uh, is something I'd be interested in? Um, I'm afraid that it was um, the the former. I never had any interest in, in becoming a legal professional. I was always a math and science nerd. I was the kid that ate my lunch with the physics professor teachers at the high school, that type of thing. I never, it just never occurred to me um, that there could be a really nice union of the technical with the legal um, to produce a really rewarding career. And so uh, my understanding is now, do you do a lot of work with kind of hazardous chemical cases? Is that something that uh, you kind of transitioned to once you became a, a lawyer, or how did you kind of get into the the personal injury uh, realm, if you will? Um, it was a, a clear cut case of love at first sight. Um, my husband um, came in as a guest um, speaker in my torts class. Um, he talked about ski law since he's the original ski lawyer and um you know out the window went my plans to be an environmental lawyer and uh, you know i immediately uh, got on board with being a personal injury lawyer and and have been thrilled ever since it's, it's it's a fascinating as you know a fascinating area to focus on it is and uh, i've actually I've, I've met your husband in passing in kind of a group situation never one on one but i did know him as the uh, the ski lawyer uh, and the guy uh, they kind of go to for all things uh, ski law. Uh, and I guess while we're talking about ski law, um, what kind of cases uh, do you kind of focus on in your personal injury practice? So I know that obviously you guys do ski cases, and I'm assuming you do kind of, you know, car wrecks and slip and falls and kind of general ones. But are there any other areas that you guys kind of focus on or that specialize in? You know, Kevin, um we have practiced long enough and, 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 and developed the reputation and the experience that we can limit our practice to, to, to catastrophic injury cases. So you're right. We do, we do all of all manner of personal injury matters. Um, the co- common denominator is always the level of complexity of the injuries and of the liability issues and, of course, the insurance coverage. And was that something that you guys kind of uh, developed uh, over time? And if so, how did you kind of 
make the decision to be that type of firm. And, and kind of the reason I ask as a, a young kind of firm owner, uh, my partner and I talk all the time about, uh, you know, where we see our, our firm going. And, you know, obviously you right. have some firms that are kind of quantity. Uh, they do a lot of advertising and they have a lot of cases. Uh, you see kind of specialists that kind of find their their niches, if you will, and only do, you know, certain types of accidents or, you know, only products liability or only med mal. And, and then there's this other type of kind of like what you said, where they kind of focus on not necessarily the type of case, but the, the level of damages. And they're really kind of focus on these catastrophic um, cases. So can you tell us a little bit about how you guys kind of made the decision to go in that direction? Well, you know, some of it um, starting out as long young lawyers, you know, working together, um, we found ourselves offered cases that um, challenged the law, um, might expand some law, um, uh, try to change the law. In other words, we were given some bad cases. <laughs> And by taking those cases, we really um, did, you know, we had some success and developed a a style of research and um, underlying investigation, both as to facts and to the law, to be able to give people sound legal advice, not based on a marketing um, plan or a business plan, but based on when what we thought was in their best interests. Um, and, 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 and that has evolved um, with extended um, limit, limited liability. Um, it's an ever evolving um, landscape with respect to the advice that you should give individuals in terms of what their legal options are. Um, but it was really our ability to um, do a systematic approach and with always maintaining uh, an eye towards what's in the best interest of these people and giving them the reason why we were giving the advice we were. Fascinating. Uh, I guess kind of speaking of advice, uh, is there anything that the advice you would give to young personal injury attorneys and or law students that may be interested in the, the person, uh, personal injury realm? Um, you know, sometimes I phrase this, what's one thing you wish you knew back then? Uh, that you know now um, that would be useful for uh, a young lawyer in this practice area? Well, you, 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 you will probably agree in this statement. Um, personal injury practice is extremely rewarding, um, I believe, intellectually and emotionally, and just feeling that you're doing good for your community. But it's not the goose that lays the golden egg. And so many, I, we, we hear it from judges, we hear it from defense attorneys, we hear it from other lawyers that do transactional work or whatever. Um, boy, you know, you guys, it's just another case, you know, and you're, 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 you're rolling in the dough, you know, you make so much money. And it just is a real misperception. Um, you know, we, 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 we are successful, we, we are very fortunate in, in, in what we've been able to earn, and what we've been able to, to do for our children and so on. But it's not, um, it's just not a matter of saying, I'm going to practice personal injury and you have all these cases coming in that are um, easy slam dunks. And, and you hear that from potential clients too. This is a you know, clear cut case of liability, right? <laughs> well, I haven't it's seen many work. of those. In, in, yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, you know, it's it's funny. Whenever I hear those comments, I'm like, yeah, uh, you know, I, I hear you, but you practice a type of law where you get paid up front, you know, and regardless of how the outcome comes, you know, uh, you know, personal injury attorneys, I think, have a, a different level of risk tolerance than many attorneys because, you know, not only are we taking cases on contingencies uh, where, you know, we don't get paid unless we win or, or settle a case, um, but in many cases, and I'm sure especially in catastrophic ones, you're fronting uh, what could be tens or even hundreds of thousands of dollars for expert witnesses and, you know, specialists and hiring doctors for their time um, to, you know, opine and kind of get these things to trial. So it's not even a situation of, you know, you may not get paid on the case, but you may lose uh, substantial amounts of money um, on a case, which I think kind of makes right. law uh, unique. Uh, and when you start pointing this out to some of the, you know, people that bill hourly and stuff, they're like, wait, what? You actually might lose money after you work on a case for a year? And you're like, yeah, yeah. that's, yeah. that's the- And that's not even mentioning what happens if you go to trial and lose and yep. then have to face your client and say, you know, this is, this is going to get ugly. Um, of course, you know, we make sure that we always tell our client pre-trial what the risks are in that if, if we were to lose, um, they would be responsible for costs for the defense. But um, yeah, we, we, when, whenever we talk to um, potential um, lawyers, you know, interested in joining the firm, we, we're up front. We say it is not for the weak of heart. You've got to have the stomach for um, not being certain that the cash flow is going to look as good in six months as it does now, that type of thing. And that right. um, things go south. Yeah, that they do. That they do. Um, I'd, I'd like to kind of pivot here uh, and talk a little bit about something that I think has become uh, extremely important to uh, not only the legal industry, but pretty much any industry uh, in the time of COVID, which is technology. Um, and I noticed in your bio that you are uh, in charge of your firm's um, technology. How important is technology to the practice of law because you don't always think of the practice of law as like well engineering for some or you know some type of uh, field where you're you know always using this cutting edge tech um, but how important is technology to in in the legal field well I think that um, certainly during your years of practice you'll see technology um, replace many areas of law currently practiced by individuals or firms. Um, and I, I um, don't, I'm not suggesting that's necessarily a bad thing, but even in the criminal realm, um, I'm sure you're familiar with the tests of using AI for sentencing recommendations rather than the discretion of a judge and the success that's been, you know, gained for um, equal justice concerns in that area. I think that, um, well, Richard Susskind, a um, a brilliant um, um, professor that has studied the legal profession both in the UK and the United States, wrote um, a a pivotal book on... um, on the the profession titled the end of lawyers question mark and it's um it 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 predicted that we would be replaced in large part by um technology and i think we're seeing that i i think that um you know insurance companies no longer actually have an experienced adjuster 
who's sitting, reviewing a claim, making decisions based on his or her knowledge of the facts, the credibility of witnesses, and so on. Um, that information is pretty much uh, you know, broken down into to brackets and in, in processed through a, a software, and um, out comes a recommended um, you know, range of settlement. It just, um, and I see that being the case in so many areas, the state law, probate, so on. Um, so, it, it, you know, I, I think we're kind of the travel agents of the, you know, 2020s. Um, 40 years ago, everyone that was in the travel agency business thought that they, you know, were set. And, uh, and that's, that's been eliminated. Right, right. What kind of technology are you guys using uh, at your firm? So I'm, I'm assuming that you guys have a you know a practice management software and uh, things like that. But are there kind of any interesting uh, you know pieces of technology or softwares uh, that you guys are using that you know are, are are pretty interesting or something that you guys are proud of? Um, you know, we um, tried several case management programs. Um, uh, began with a, um, a a software program that was actually purchased, and then went on. We tried Clio, a um, couple of others, and, and finally landed on FileVine, which is hey, a. <laughs> you know, I can't say enough, and I have to say, um, our partner Evan Banker. Um, is a file file buying guru. He has automated the the software um, functionality so well that it just it, it's it's phenomenal. It it really is. It really allows all of us to have time to actually think and study and review file and do the lawyering. And this is a great example of what I was talking about, where the technology just. Um, takes all the information and prepares, um, you know, not just templated um, pleadings or letters, but also um, it keeps track of um, who should be contacted when to remind experts to keep track of, you know, any deadlines and so on. And it's really, it's a very powerful tool. But I think, you know, if you're not practicing personal injury, the takeaway is, really try a number of different software um, programs. Find something that's a good fit for what you're doing. Don't feel like um, just because Clio is the gorilla in the, in, in the room that that's necessarily the best choice for you. Um, it, I, it obviously is successful, but it may not be what you need. Um, and we, you know, are big Microsoft users. We migrated to the cloud using, you know, the Microsoft platform um, and the office suite is, is a, you know, is a real, really the backbone to our, our system. Yeah, it's funny uh, that you talk about that journey uh, because it was really familiar uh, at my firm. Uh, we were Clio users uh, for um, quite a while and I've got nothing, you know, negative to say about Clio. They are large and established and um, you know, when we were doing a lot of hourly billing for our criminal practice, uh, it made a lot of sense. Um, and then I actually saw a Filevine guy at one of the CTLA events um, and was, you know, hearing about it and then did a demo of it. And um, yeah, it's it's really cool to, to see what you can accomplish with some technology. And, um, you know, I, I think back to one of the firms that I used to work at when I was in law school, which was 
very, very old school, still had a lot of writing on, on the files. And, you know, basically, you, you know, if in order to know what was going on in the case, you needed the physical file. And then you had to review the notes that like different people had written down, you know, paralegal writes something, uh, lawyer writes something. And, you know, you had to try to guess what people's handwriting was. Uh, and, you know, and so to see how far we've come and it allows, you know, technology has allowed us to, to, to really focus on the practice of law and cut out some of the inefficiencies. And now, you know, no matter where my staff is, a lot of people working from home, you know, we can all use FileVine and really a lot of the practice management software. So there's a lot of great ones out there. Um, and, you know, everyone can be touching the file and it just keeps a nice running list of everything everyone's doing. You can see what needs done, set deadlines. You can integrate with other softwares. And um, it's just kind of fascinating. Uh, so one thing that I think that young lawyers sometimes uh, may run into uh, in this issue is um, obviously my generation and especially the people that are even younger than me uh, grew up with all kinds of technology uh, and you know are, are fairly good at using it, fairly good at learning how to use it, teaching themselves to use it. Um, but they may be working uh, for uh, bosses or partners um, that didn't do that and are kind of more hesitant to make large technological uh, changes uh, in their practices. What advice would you give to those young lawyers um, who are trying to pitch a technology change to, you know, somebody up the food chain, you know, to a partner or a managing partner or a firm administrator to say, hey, you know, I think if we added this, it could really improve, um, you know, our firm. Any, any advice for them on kind of how to pitch that to, to someone that, you know, maybe uh, not as technologically adept as they are? Well, the, you know, the um, professional rules of conduct uh, make it clear that to be in compliance, you must use um, appropriate security measures and um, oversight measures for maintaining um, your conflict check, um, your deadlines. Uh, most professional insurance policies require um, a electronic calendaring that is approved and is, is, is used. Um, and, you know, and, and, and that's, it, it, I, I, I grin when I say that, but um, so many individuals will buy great software programs, great, you know, um, word processing programs, but then they'll still pull up an old document use that old document just by replacing the names or replacing the dates and paste and cut. Um, that's not the standard um, for good lawyer practice now. So if you're reusing the same document over and over for different cases, or you're not using, if you're using your laptop as a typewriter rather than using a functionality of your case, you know, software, case management software, then you are courting disaster, either professionally in terms of um, liability or just making a mistake that costs you and your client. Um, the other issue I would um, caution about is security. I do occasionally run into folks practicing law that really think Google Docs is terrific. Um, I or they have a Gmail account for their professional account, and I, um, you know, I think Google's great. I would not rely on their security system 
um, to provide the level of security that you really need to um, protect your attorney-client privilege. So those those were the B. Yeah, and that's a and that's a really good point because I do think that you know we we often think of what the technology can kind of uh, do for us and how it can make our practices easier or faster or better. Um, but sometimes that and since sometimes security is not necessarily the first thing that we think of. Um, but you know you make a really great point. I mean we're dealing with very sensitive information. Obviously it's going to be different depending on the practice area, but. You know, we're, you know, in our practice area, we're going to be dealing with a lot of medical records, uh, a lot of really sensitive um, information in the criminal world. You may be dealing with evidence or statements from your clients uh, that you certainly don't want anybody uh, to see. Um, And as technology kind of progresses, so do the people trying to steal data, uh, trying to steal information or hack, uh, you know, your uh, accounts. And I say that uh, I was recently the victim of someone hacking my Instagram and created created a fake profile with my name and all my pictures uh, and then tried to friend people and get them involved in some scheme to send money somewhere as part of a grant program. It was really fascinating. Luckily, we caught it, you know, notified Instagram and about you know four hours later, they took it down and everything was good. But uh, I am especially reminded of the importance of security uh, right now. Having, thankfully, it was just my personal stuff, and uh, my my firm stuff was apparently much more secure. So, uh, thankful, <laughs> thankful for that. Well, that you know, um, and it it it, it is uh, it for I think the younger lawyers, um, it's not evident that having a, a client that's really comfortable with texting. And anymore, most of our clients do text us. I mean, that's a you know regular means of communication. That's not um, a. It's not um, secure. If you lose your phone and someone's able to hack into it, all that information is there. So um, having some process where you capture those text messages and there's a number of very inexpensive um, program software available that will do that for you and, and, and just put it into an electronic file. Um, and, and keep in mind when you're talking to someone of my age and my generation and you say, Oh, I spoke to that client last week. Well, to me, a text message, you know, back and forth is not having a conversation <laughs> with somebody. And so it, it, I, I think it's just it's it's helpful to be um, sensitive to the fact that if you tell me that you spoke to someone, I think that you actually talked, you know, orally to someone. Not that I have anything against emailing or texting, but it's just it's a different form of communication. It's not talking to people. Right. Right. Um, well, to uh, kind of make a segue here. Um, I also want to talk to you a little bit about your involvement uh, with the Legal Aid Foundation and Colorado uh, Legal Services. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about those organizations, kind of what they do and kind of why you decided to get involved? I'm so thrilled you asked. I was always aware that there was an entity out in the legal community in Denver that helped folks that couldn't afford a lawyer. I had no idea how desperately those services are needed, nor how 
hard it is to get the funding for those services until I became a member of the board of the Colorado Legal Aid Foundation. So um, it, it, it's not discussed a lot, and it's really a shame that it's not uh, doesn't have a higher profile. But the Colorado Legal Services is operated to provide legal representation and advice to individuals who are um, who are eligible based on a means test. And just to give you an idea. Um, a family of four is eligible to receive services from the Colorado Legal Services if they make less than $31,000 a year. You know, that's just for four people to live on that is, is, is it's very hard to imagine. But we're going to have more and more people falling into that um, category with the current circumstances with the economy and um, the uh, the COVID evictions that are coming. So legal services help with domestic violence cases, consumer cases, evictions, housing, and with um, em- employment matters and um, just consumer rights matters. So many of these are, um, you know, bad faith cases against car, you know, used car lots, um, predatory practices by landlords, um, domestic violence cases where the individual doesn't feel that they have a, a, a safe alternative. The Colorado Legal Services provides attorneys that help these individuals in every jurisdiction in the state. Um, sadly, now those those attorneys are facing um, different rules for the um, the trial courts in each one of those different um, jurisdictions. There's no consistency. It's kind of like you know the mask mandate. But um, the Colorado Legal Aid Foundation is the funding or- organ for legal services. So our sole purpose is to try and gain funding for Colorado Legal Services, and we do that by reaching out to our fellow lawyers. Um, we, you know, talk to folks that we know, we call up individuals and and, and, and call up firms. And um, generally, we've had a very successful track record. But um, funding has decreased because of the interest rates. Um, coal TAF is no longer generating, generating the type of interest revenue that we were able to, to look to. Um, and, uh, and the numbers are growing. Is so obviously uh, for anyone listening, uh, uh, definitely consider uh, if you're able uh, making some type of donation to uh, the Legal Aid um, Foundation. Uh, you just heard about kind of the wonderful services uh, that that they uh, provide and the help to the community that they provide. And I agree, it's only going to get uh, worse. I think we're kind of. Uh, in the area where we're, we haven't quite felt all of the economic repercussions that are coming from COVID. Uh, evictions are a uh, prime example. You know, there's been some moratoriums, some kind of slowdown, but eventually all that rent that isn't getting paid is going to, you know, come due and people are going to be in a real hard way and can, you know, really use the support of uh, lawyers that are either cheap or pro bono. Um, in addition to giving money, um, are, is there a way, so I'm assuming there's a way for young lawyers to get involved and to help out and assist on these cases. Uh, is there any way for law students to get involved? Uh, obviously they can't represent clients on their own, but 
as their research or kind of law clerk level tasks that they could be doing uh, to help out on any of this stuff? Uh, you know, that's not a, um, a program um, that we have exploited. We, um, we do take advantage of the associates in the legal community. Each March, there is an associates um, leadership campaign where they actually go to the lawyers, both other associates and partners in their firm, and, 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 and kind of do a, um, a, a good-natured, you know, drumming up <laughs> donations so that there's a lot of competition oh, among the larger firms in, in town. Oh, um, but your point about the law students um, is, is a good one. And um, I would encourage if there are law students that would be interested in learning more about the, the, the work of both Colorado Legal Services and Colorado Legal Aid Foundation, they're welcome to email me. One of the most valuable things to me as a law student was trying to get practical experience. Um, you know, you, uh, you, you learn a lot of theoretical law, which is super important. You've got to learn kind of how to think as a lawyer. Uh, you learn a lot of writing, which is obviously practical. Um, but, you know, sometimes it, the, the difference between, you know, torts in the classroom is different than, you know, practicing PI and, you know, family law. Boy. <laughs> Any of that in the classroom where you think it's all going to be, you know, this theoretical stuff and then you get into the real world and like you need to know how to write a motion and you need to know how to use the e-filing program. And when you show it up to court, you got to know, you know, who to check in with and who you talk to. And like there's all this little stuff that they don't teach you. Um, and, you know, one of the best things that I did in law school was the criminal defense clinic where we basically got to be little mini public defenders and the public defenders would send us a handful of cases uh, that we got to, to work on. And I was actually my very first trial and a very first courtroom experience. And, um, you know, that was great for, for criminal cases, but uh, I was just thinking that it would be really cool, you know, obviously if they couldn't, you know, fully practice, to, but to be able to assist on some of these cases, because not only would they be, you know, helping, uh, you know, provide a, a really important need, but they'd also be getting to see like, you know, how law is really practice and, you know, kind right. of the nuts and bolts to allow them to kind of hit the ground running. And, uh, you know, and especially in hard economic times to be more marketable uh, to potential employers, you know, like if you've seen Absolutely. X, Y, and Z and help do it and be like, you don't have to train me. You know, I spent, you know, six months volunteering with uh, Colorado Legal Services, you know, doing this kind of stuff. So, uh, yeah, if you guys are, if anyone's listening and you're a law student and you're like, you know what, that sounds cool, uh, reach out to Linda uh, and maybe there's something there uh, that, you know, she can set you up with. Um, I want to uh, switch gears here to our, our final uh, topic of the day um, and talk a, a little bit about what it's been like for you being a woman in the law and kind of a, a woman um, trial lawyer. Obviously, you are a a name partner at a successful firm. Uh, and this is obviously a topic that I don't have any uh, personal experience um, about, but uh, with, uh, but how, what's it been like being, uh, you know, a name partner at a law firm kind of uh, as a woman? And how has that journey, I guess, changed over your career? I mean, hopefully it's getting better uh, for not only women, but people of color and, you know, all other types of unrepresented minorities. 
um, in the legal field. But uh, tell us a little bit about how, how what that's been like for you. It it it, it was challenging at first, um, but it was um, less um, male dominated than working as a, a chemical engineer. A little bit of a relief. Um, I went from going to pick up, you know, equipment with girly calendars on the wall and, you know, it, it, just a real old boys um, feel. Um, but I did have a number of attorneys um, my first few years that um, made terrible comments um, thought that it was funny to, you know, try to embarrass me. Um, one told me I was committing malpractice because I was pregnant and my due date was, uh, it was causing problems with scheduling a trial. Um, but that's all, you know, that's, 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 that's way past. I think that um, the legal profession is, is quickly opening up to diversity of all kinds. And I think that that's demonstrated by the recognition of the areas of, of, of new rights for individuals that wish to work in the area of um, transgender rights. Now that's a recognized area to a, a field of, of practice. You can, you know, it's it just, you know, it, it's just blossomed into such a rich, diverse um, choice of areas to focus in. I think it's really, really wonderful. Uh, there's still quite a bit of pro- progress that needs to be made. We're not nearly a, as diverse a legal community as I think we should be in representing the, the Denver um, area specifically, but you know, throughout the, the state. Um, but I, I'm very encouraged, and I um, can say there are a number of female mentors and um, heroes that are in the, the Denver legal community that I really look up to and um, am, am proud to be, you know, um, on good terms with. So I, I, it's not, it's not nearly the um, challenge it was 20 years ago. And um, I'm just thrilled that there's more and more female attorneys, um, you know, going out and doing the good work. Yeah, you know, and it's, I, I was looking at the, I think that CU Boulder's law school has accepted uh, more female law students now for like two or three years um, in a row. Um, and, uh, you know, especially at the YLD level, uh, the CBA is doing really some amazing um, diversity work. Uh, we're shooting this podcast on December 4th. Yesterday on December 3rd, uh, we had a, mo- a panel uh, about the movie Moonlight, uh, and then had a uh, drag show uh, actually attached to it um, as kind of a uh, really just interesting uh, event and celebration of diversity. And uh, I was talking to somebody and you're like, you know, could you even imagine something like that being sponsored, you know, not even by, you know, one of the more progressive necessarily bar associations, but the CBA itself, uh, you know, <laughs> years ago. And they're like, no way, 0% chance. And, um, you know, Colorado uh, is not the most diverse state uh, by any means, uh, has really been, um, you know, uh, been starting to be nationally recognized at the Bar Association level uh, for some of the diversity uh, stuff that we have been um, working on. And then I think in, uh, uh, in the personal injury realm, one of the, I think the very first podcast guest we ever had on uh, was Jennifer Chamberlain. 
and she was talking a little bit about uh, the Women's Trial Lawyers Network um, uh, through the CTLA, which is a whole like organization inside of the organization just focused on uh, women trial lawyers and uh, you know holding events and CLEs, and they've got their home listserv, um, really promoting that and, and allowing women to feel, I think, more comfortable uh, asking questions and, you know, participating and, and being kind of these lead, the lead counsel um, in uh, a lot of these situations. And uh, it's really cool to see how far uh, we've come. Um, I, I want to ask you a little bit about something that you said that, you know, we've got um, a, a little ways to go still. And I think that's true both for, you know, women in the law, people of color in the law, uh, LGBTQ people in the law. Um, what specific things would you like to see um, improve in in the law as far as uh, you know how it interacts with women and, and things like that? Well, I I, I think that um, as a profession, we need to pivot from the money, and when I say the money, I mean the money clients, um, corporate entities. Um, dominate the legal world and as such there is a snobbery towards those of us such as you and I who represent the little guys in in, in, in you know whether it's in the state law or um, you know domestic law whatever we're not you know we're not inferior because we serve individuals rather than corporate giants but there's always kind of the um, the, the snobbery about um, well we're a business law firm we don't you know deal with the masses and I think we need to change the the view in the profession that really we're here to help the masses we're really here for individuals to help better their lives through means that provide just reward or just consequences and to right wrongs. And um, I, I think at one point we, we had a stronger sense of that. Um, I think Abraham Lincoln would be shocked at what most corporate lawyers do on a daily basis. Of course, he'd probably be shocked that you and I are sitting here talking to each other over, you know, technology, you know, voodoo and wires and Wi-Fi. Uh, uh, so I guess my, my last question for you um, uh, on the topic is what advice? So one of the things that we always try to promote here, and in fact, this next episode we're going to shoot here shortly, uh, is all going to be about mentorship. But what advice would you give to either a, a, a female law student or a young uh, female lawyer uh, that's just kind of starting out? Um, is there anything that you know you wish you knew back then, uh, or any advice that you can give them uh, to kind of help them? I mean, clearly you've thrived in you know now two different male-dominated uh, careers, uh, although getting to be less so in the law. Um, you know, what advice would you give to you know those uh, young women, uh, you know, to to be successful and uh, to kind of you know walk the path that you know you've already kind of blazed here. You know, my advice would be the same to, to, to anyone starting out. And, and, and my strongest recommend is, recommendation is don't be hesitant to reject a case. If the case 
has significant problems when you first start it, more than likely those problems are not going to get smaller. They're going to get bigger. And you're not benefiting a potential client by starting a case or a claim that is not strong enough to go forward all the way to trial. So I just, you know, I, I wish that I had had the um, experience and the confidence to look someone in, uh, in the eye, a potential client in the eye, and say, I'm sorry, but this really isn't in your best interest to pursue, rather than thinking, well, we'll try and, you know, fight the good fight and, and, and maybe things will work out. Um, Great advice. Very, uh, very easier said uh, than done, and, and one that I uh, still have to remind myself of all the time, that you can't help everyone, and that sometimes uh, trying to help people will just, you know, make it worse, and sometimes the best thing you can do for them is just to be honest and be like, there's nothing that we can do here, right, you know, and, and right. it, sometimes injustice carries the day, uh, and you've got to be honest with people about that rather than, you know, giving them false hope or leading them down an expensive and time-consuming road that is only going to get them back to where they were in the beginning. Um, well, Linda, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It was really a pleasure uh, to have this time uh, and speak with you. Uh, as we mentioned earlier, I would like to end every podcast uh, by having the guest uh, provide an email address or, you know, a way that they like to be contacted. Um, if any of our listeners are interested in learning anything more about personal injury, ski law, technology in the firms, uh, the Legal Aid Foundation, the Colorado Legal Services, or uh, if you're a young lawyer uh, looking for uh, a mentor or something, uh, feel free to reach out to Linda. Linda, what's the best way uh, for our listeners to uh, get in contact with you? Email is um, always welcomed. I um, read, read my email consistently and constantly, and that email address is l. C H A L A T at C H A L A T L A W dot com. So L Shalot at shalotlaw.com. Everyone stay safe out there. All right. Thank you so much again, Linda. You have a wonderful day and you stay safe out there as well. Thank you, Kevin. Get legal with it.